Good morning. How is everybody doing? Oh, I almost forgot the password to my iPad. That would have been rough. All right, so my name is Michael Badger. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer Church. And uh, again, I hope you're having a good morning. We're so thankful to see some, some new faces, some, some friends. And uh, so we're just so thrilled that you guys are here to, uh, to worship God with us this morning and to dive into his word, which is what we are just about to do. And we've been going through the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, because we want to do exactly what we sang about this morning. We want to know not just the rumors of who God is or the rumors of who Jesus is, but we, we want to know what God's word or who God's word says that Jesus is. We want to know who God really is. And again, not just the rumors. And so we're diving into this gospel of Mark. And one of the characteristics of this book, of the gospel of Mark that we're navigating through, is that he wasn't super concerned. He wasn't too terribly concerned with putting everything in chronological order. And that can at times be, it can be something that throws off modern readers, especially when they begin to compare Mark with another gospel that does try to stay, or that is a little bit more concerned with getting the chronology of Jesus' life in ministry in the right sequential order. And one of the reasons is because we modern readers are more accustomed to traditional biographies, right, that, that kind of walk through the life of historical figures step by step, moment by moment, event by event, in the order that their life happened. That's just what we're used to. That's what we're, that's what we're used to reading. Well, for us to fully appreciate and understand the book of Mark, we first have to realize that chronology wasn't his primary concern. That, that wasn't what he was primarily concerned with. Mark wrote this book in order to be easy to read, and even more importantly than that, kind of easy to memorize. He wanted this book to be easy to memorize for those who were suffering under the intense and under the, the terrible persecution in Rome. He wanted the readers to be able to, to bring to memory these stories of Jesus when they were suffering and when they needed to be reminded of the goodness and the hope that they have in Christ. And so that was, that was Mark's intent when he put together this gospel. So instead of chronology, Mark decided to order his gospel with somewhat of a loose topical structure, often pairing related events together. That's what he did. And that's why sometimes in the book of Mark, you have something that, that kind of happened later in Jesus' ministry put together with something that happened earlier in Jesus' ministry. Now, this is pretty important for us to know, especially as modern readers, because there are many, many Bible critics out there who will try to convince you that there are errors in the Bible because Mark will have something happening at a different time than, say, Luke, who was more concerned with chronology. But there is no mistake. There is no mistake. They each had different goals and different audiences in mind for their specific gospels, for their specific books that were written. And we can be confident that there are no contradictions found within the pages of Scripture. That's something that we can hold on to. That's something that we can believe in, which is why nearly all high-level 
critics of Christianity rarely use that argument. They rarely use the argument that there are contradictions found within Scripture. You don't see that as often as you used to. But with all that being said, we are looking today at one grouping of the events in Jesus' ministry that we have called Holy Confrontations. Holy Confrontations. And we have called it this because in chapter 2, going through the first six uh, verses of chapter 3, Mark gives us five different confrontations that Jesus has with the religious establishment of his day. And today we're going to be looking at two. We're going to be looking at two of those holy confrontations. And now I I, I do want to warn you that before we we dive in, that there's a good chance, and and I kind of hope it happens, that your toes may be stepped on. Because as I was studying for this passage, and as I was preparing for it, my toes were, uh, they were aching by the time I was done. It was one of the most convicting times that I've had in the last little while as I've been preparing for sermons. And the reason is, because when we're reading scripture, we can, we can often make a mistake. And one mistake that we, that we often make when we're reading the Bibles is that we place ourselves either in A, the position of the hero, the one who stands tall and firm in our dedication to God. Think of, think of David versus Goliath. Or B, when we read of the heroes of the Bible failing, think of David with Bathsheba we often place ourselves above them, right? Saying that, that we would never have done that evil, that evil thing that they did if we were in the same situation. We've kind of put ourselves at this morally superior, higher level than those people who fail within Scripture. But as much as we try to hide or run away from it, the truth is, is that when, when we read of the moral failures in the Bible and the, and the characters in the Bible or the people in the Bible who, who fail God, it's more often than, that, than not that that is a, the true reflection of ourselves. That is. It's a reflection of our own sins and moral failings. And so as uncomfortable as that is, I know it's it's uncomfortable for me, let's remember that as we dig into today's holy confrontations. But first, let's pray. Father, as we sang this morning, God, you are a good, good Father. And so I pray, Lord, that you give us ears to hear your word Lord, I pray that you give us minds that are open to the truth of it. And I pray that you give us hearts that are moldable, Lord, so that we can be changed by the truth that is in your holy word. And we pray that your spirit is our guide this morning. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. All right. So... Today we are beginning in verse 13 of Mark chapter 2. And it is actually somewhat of an encouraging start to, uh, to our time today. Because if you remember, Jesus had sought refuge in the wilderness after being bombarded by people who were seeking to be healed by him. They were coming from every corner, every quarter, Mark tells us. But last week we saw that Jesus decided that it was time for him to return to Capernaum. 
a well-populated city known for its commerce, for its fishing, and all that good stuff. It was a booming metropolis, and we see here in verse 13 that he is finally able to get on with his primary ministry of preaching that the kingdom of God has finally come, and the need for repentance and faith. But if you lived in Capernaum, if you were one of the citizens of Capernaum or any city or village within the Roman Empire, a hard fact of life was that you would be under the weight of heavy and oppressive taxation. There were taxes on commerce, there were taxes on property, on road usage, and many, many other areas of life. And my notes say, insert political rant here, but I'm just going to skip over that part, so it's not... And they would construct, these people would construct these crude wooden structures, these, these booths where you would bring, if you were a citizen of Rome, where you would bring your taxes to a tax collector. However, Rome would often delegate the office of tax collector to Jewish individuals, and the way that, that Jewish men could actually become a tax collector was to essentially enter into a lottery. And if you were lucky enough to have your name drawn from this lottery, then you became the tax collector for that particular area. Well, one of the, the perks of being a tax collector was that you were actually given the responsibility to set a quota for how much money that you believed you could suck out of that particular place. And part of the agreement between Rome and these Jewish tax collectors was that they could set the tax. The Jewish men could set the tax rate as high as they possibly wanted. And as long as they gave the amount of the quota that they agreed upon with Rome, they could take whatever was left, anything left over, anything extra that they were able to gain from their taxes and keep for themselves. And as you can probably imagine, this led to a, a very, very greedy and corrupt system in which Jewish men became extraordinarily wealthy from stealing from their own people. And again, as you can imagine, tax collectors were, they were hated. They were absolutely hated. They were labeled as traitors and seen as some of the worst sinners imaginable. In fact, the Jewish tradition found in the Mishnah and the Talmud put tax collectors in the exact same category as thieves and murderers. So they were not looked highly upon at all. Their membership even in the synagogue was revoked. And anyone associating with them were seen as unclean. They were essentially social lepers. They were, they were pariahs. They were, they were hated. People would spit at their feet as they walked by. But they did it. They became tax collectors. But here in verse 14, we see Jesus walking along the sea. And as he passes by one of these tax booths, he calls out to the man who is inside. This man named Levi, who is also uh, Matthew. He's the author of the Gospel of Matthew. That's who Jesus is calling. And he, said, he says, follow me. He says, follow me to this despised man. And those following Jesus must have dropped dead from shock. I mean, this was, this was absolutely scandalous. That Jesus would have the gall to call a tax collector of all people to follow him. It was, it was unheard of. 
And now it is no mistake that Mark decided to put this account right next to the story of Jesus healing the leper. It was just as, if not more, scandalous and looked down upon for Jesus to call a tax collector to follow him than it was for Jesus to touch a leper. That's how serious this was, because at least lepers weren't actively trying to steal from their own people, right? And yet Jesus... Ignoring all social norms and customs, he does just that. He calls out to Matthew. And Matthew rose and followed him. And friends, this is another example of someone leaving their, their whole world behind. Everything. I mean, think about, think about Matthew. Think about the fact that the only thing that he really has in life is his material wealth. That's it. He doesn't have friends. He doesn't have family. He doesn't have a good social standing. He just has wealth. That's it. And he gives it all up to follow Christ. It makes me think, what are, what are we willing to give up to follow Christ? To follow after his call? Well, we're then taken to Matthew's house where Mark tells us Jesus is reclining with, with not just his disciples, and he's not, he's not reclining at this table with just Matthew. But he's reclining at a table with, with even more tax collectors and even more sinners of, of all kinds. And you know that these are not reputable people because they're hanging out with tax collectors. Now, in the original Greek this, that this was written in, the phrase reclining at a table meant that they were not just having any ordinary meal. Now, this, this phrase is typically used when there was a feast going on. They were feasting together. And Jesus was the guest of honor among these thieving tax collectors and, and these filthy sinners. And now remember for a moment what we spoke on last week. Remember that Jesus had already rocked the boat with the Pharisees, with the, with the religious elite of his day. And the way that he did this was basically declare, well, not basically, but actually declaring himself God by saying that he had the authority to forgive sins. So you could say that he was right there kicking the hornet's nest. And so for Jesus to call a tax collector to be one of his disciples and then share a feast with even more tax collectors and sinners, it is like Jesus went back to that very hornet's nest and didn't just poke it with his toe, but just stomped on it and jumped up and down on it. That's essentially what's happening here. So read with me verses 16 and 17. It says, And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciple, disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, when you see this word sinners used here, when it is used in this way by Mark in verse 15 and by the Pharisees in verse 16, it is, has a specific purpose. It means specifically the Jewish people who are not committed to the in-depth study of the law of God. And so these Jewish people were often what's called synchronistic with the surrounding culture. They were synchronistic with the surrounding culture, meaning that they were Jewish by birth, sure, but they began to assimilate with the Roman culture and customs, and they kind of just left their uh, Jewish heritage by the wayside. So that's what the term sinners is specifically meaning right here. But the term Pharisees, on the other hand, 
means separated ones. You see, they boasted and took pride in keeping the law of God. And not only that, but also to keeping themselves completely pure. And so they distanced themselves from anyone who might live like or even look like a sinner. They had no dealings with or wanted nothing to do with those who were tax collectors. They wanted nothing to do with the people that Jesus was currently hanging out with. And when they saw Jesus, who was supposed to be a rabbi, of all things, hanging out with this group of unclean filth, they were in complete disbelief. And I'm sad to say that there are many Christians like that, right? Christians who think that there is some kind of virtue in avoiding contact with with any sinners of any kind. Christians who would prefer to live their lives in, in in this holy bubble, right? Only surrounded by the people that they deem worthy enough, that they deem holy enough to spend time with, to to grace them with their presence. But friends, Jesus, as as R.C. Sproul says, he did not keep himself locked away in a monastery or a covenant, or a convent, I should say. He was out where the people were, where those who were lost were located, where the suffering were to be found. And friends, the same should be true for us, right? Romans 12 does tell us that we should not love the world and we should not be shaped or conformed by the world. But friends, if you are a Christian in this room, then you are called to minister to those who are in the world. And yes, Scripture does call for our closest relationships and friendships to be with other believers. That is true, but Christian, you are not called to live within the confines of a holy bubble, but to dine with sinners and share the good news of Christ. So ask yourself this. Who would Jesus, if he were to have not come 2,000 years ago, but, but come today, Here in St. Albans, who do you think he would dine with? Who would he dine with here in St. Albans? And then ask yourself this question, am I willing to eat at that person's table? Am I willing to open up my own table to them? Ask yourself, is there a, a holy bar that sinners in need of Jesus must overcome for them to be worthy of your time and of your love? And friends, if the answer to that question is yes, then you need to repent. But not only do you need to repent, but you need to praise God that whoever shared the gospel with you did not have a holy bar of their own that you had to overcome. And not only that, but you need to praise God that Jesus did not have a holy bar that you had to overcome. Because friends, none of us, none of us deserve the grace of Jesus. Not a one. And yet he dined with the worst of sinners. And remember what I said at the introduction to this sermon when I said that that we often read the Bible as the heroes or the moral betters. And so I finally want to ask you to ask yourself, who do you most relate to in this story? Jesus or the Pharisees? 
Now, it's, it's not my intention to put undue guilt on you. And I do pray that if you are following Christ and you are being Christ-like in this situation, then, then praise God. But if you are like me, then there are times when you find yourself in the place of the Pharisees more often than you would like to admit. If you are like me, then you need to pray and ask God to soften your heart and to give you a supernatural love, a love that, that's not naturally uh, occurring inside of us, to be able to love the people of this world like Christ does. Well, Jesus heard the Pharisees questioning his disciples, and he answers their question. By saying in verse 17, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, could you imagine a doctor who refused to see anyone who was sick? Who would refuse to take on patients that were in desperate need because they had some sort of disease or illness? That would, that would kind of defeat the purpose of them being a doctor, wouldn't it? Ethan, you know? Yeah. He's a doctor. And so Jesus is essentially saying, there is, there's nothing more ridiculous, nothing, nothing crazier than a doctor who doesn't see sick people, and so therefore there's nothing more ridiculous than the Messiah to spend all of his time with righteous people. Now commentator Walter Wessel, and I pronounced that name like ten times in front of a mirror before I said it right there, so. Walter Wessel points out that there is a, a bit of irony that Jesus is employing here. You see, Scripture makes it clear that there is no human being who is in and of themselves righteous. Scripture says that there is none righteous, not one. So Jesus is not saying that the reason he is not spending time with the Pharisees and the other religious leaders is because they are righteous and therefore they don't need repentance and faith. It's not what he's saying here. What Jesus is saying is that he came to save the humble, not the self-righteous. He's saying, I didn't come to cater to your self-righteous people because you believe that you are above everyone else. That you, through your own effort, can save yourselves. But I came to save those who recognize that they are sinful people. I came to save those who come to me humbly, knowing that they need mercy. Knowing that their sin is a burden that they cannot lift off of themselves. Knowing that their sin is this spiritual shackle that they do not have the strength to break. Those are the ones who will heed my call of repentance and faith. And so those are the ones that I came to save. And friends, there is no sin-sick soul that is too far gone. It is, it is His glory. It is His joy to heal and restore true life and to offer strength and mend the broken hearts of those whose souls are wrought with the cancer of sin. And if you are here and you are feeling the conviction from your sin right now, then, then friend, praise God. Praise God, because just like the symptoms of an illness are a warning sign that you need to see a doctor, conviction of sin is a sign that you need to go to our great physician of souls to receive the healing only He can provide by forgiving your sins. You see, the Pharisees and the other religious leaders, they ignored the conviction of their sin. 
They ignored it. They ignored the symptoms of their soul's illness. And that's the epitome of self-righteousness. And just like someone who has a treatable yet terminal disease but ignores the symptoms, convincing themselves that they don't need to go to a doctor, to ignore the conviction of sin is disastrous. It's deadly. Now, we're not told how the Pharisees responded to Jesus. But I can't imagine it was all too positive. Well, Mark then moves us onto the third of our confrontations. Second today, but third in total. In verses 18 through 22. But this time the confrontation comes in the form of a question about fasting. Now, some commentators are kind of split on who is doing the asking here. Some believe that it is the Pharisees. Some believe that it might be some of John's disciples, while others believe it may be a combination or even a completely separate group of people. Uh, we, don't, we don't really know for sure, and it doesn't really matter too much, because what we do know was that the only time that was required for, uh, that fasting was required that is spoken of in the New Testament was during the Days of Atonement, also called Yom Kippur. We see that in the book of Acts. However, other fasting customs were developed by Israel, by the Jewish people, and it was often, often used as a sign of, of mourning or even sorrowful repentance. But the purpose of fasting, it was always attached to some sort of negative emotion. right? And I don't mean negative as in bad, but I mean negative as in mourning or sorrow. The Pharisees, however, created their own custom, as they really like to do, making fasting a duty twice a week, on Mondays and on Thursdays. Now, John the Baptist and his disciples were known for their aesthetic lifestyle, forsaking any sort of personal belongings, not, not wearing the typical clothing, but instead wearing things that were made of crude materials, such as camel hair. And so it was not too much of a surprise that they also took on a uh, similar custom of fasting, much like the Pharisees albeit with more than likely a different heart behind it. And so John's disciples and the Pharisees were, were partaking in their regular weekly fasting, and some people began to take notice that Jesus' disciples were not required by him to fast. And so they approached Jesus and they asked, why is it that John's disciples and the Pharisees are, are fasting like good religious people, but, but your disciples aren't? What's going on? What's up with that? And Jesus responds in a somewhat of a strange way, in a way that you wouldn't really expect. Because he responds with three parables, beginning with one about a wedding. He begins in verse 19, saying, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as the bridegroom is with them, they cannot fast. You see, in ancient Israel, weddings were, were far different than how we ex uh, experience weddings today. You see, today we can get out of weddings in like you know, one to two hours tops maybe. But weddings for them in ancient Israel, they were a week-long feasting events. Husbands in this room are just like, oh, man, praise God we don't live in ancient Israel. Uh, so, there were these week-long feasting events, and all of the best wines and foods that you could possibly imagine were brought out to celebrate the marriage. It was, a, it was a time to party. It was not a time to fast. 
In fact, fasting during a wedding feast would be, it would be inappropriate, to say the least. Fasting was reserved for mourning in a time of sorrow and solemnity, but when the bridegroom was with the guest, it was a time of immense celebration. To fast during a wedding, just, it just wouldn't make sense. You just wouldn't do it. And so what Jesus is saying here in this parable is that the Messiah has come to you. The Messiah has come to you. This is not a time for mourning or sorrow. This is, this is a time for celebration. This is a time to feast because the Son of God has come to walk among you and bring the kingdom of God and healing and forgiveness. So why, why would I tell my disciples to fast right now? I need to tell them to feast, to celebrate, to party. And so why, why are you fasting right now? That's the real question. But then Jesus continues in verse 20 by saying the day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast in that day. Now the Greek used for the term taken away in this particular passage has a connotation of violence. And this is the first time in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus refers to his coming arrest and crucifixion. And so he is saying that it is at that time and my coming arrest and crucifixion, that fasting will be appropriate. And so Jesus here was not criticizing the practice of fasting, but in fact he was putting it within its proper context and function. Now I do want to say that after Jesus' resurrection and ascension into heaven, the New Testament does have other things to say about fasting. But fasting in this specific context, in this passage, is being tied specifically to the Jewish custom, and it has a slightly different purpose than what God reveals to us elsewhere in relation to the church, where fasting is used alongside prayer, for instance. I just want to kind of clear that up, if that uh, question started formulating in your mind. But then Jesus shifts to two more short parables and begins with one about a piece of cloth. Jesus said, no one sews a piece of unshrunken cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. So often, if you were to wear a shirt, right, and then you were to wash it several times and allow it to dry, it will eventually shrink. And if you keep washing it and you keep drying it, it will eventually shrink down to where it will no longer get any smaller. Now imagine that you tore a hole in that shrunken shirt that for nostalgic reasons that your wife will not understand, you're refusing to get rid of. It's not a personal thing, I'm just, just saying. But imagine you tore a hole in that shirt. And then you take a brand new piece of cloth that has never been washed before to patch that hole. And then you throw it again into the washing machine and then the dryer. What happens? The new cloth shrinks. And it rips the stitching and it tears away from the old cloth. He then tells a similar parable about wineskins. He says, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So in the time of the New Testament, wineskins were often made of, of goat skin. 
And there was a specific reason for this because they were, they were durable and they were also able to stretch. And so when they would take new wine, they would pour it into these, these fresh wineskins and it would still kind of be in the process of fermenting and the wine would release these gases that would stretch out the wineskin. But if you were to put a brand new wine or put brand new wine into an old wineskin that had already been stretched to the max, the new wine would still ferment and emit those gases, but because the old wineskin no longer had any room to stretch, it would burst. And all of the wine would be completely ruined and the wineskin itself would be torn and unusable. So we're kind of left with a question after this. And that question is, what in the world is Jesus talking about here? Because it kind of sounds like he's like getting into that like life hack territory and he's trying to just help you life hack things. But Jesus is saying here that you cannot take what is new and force it into the structures of the old. And the reason is because the old structures will simply not be able to bear it. Let me try to explain. You see, with the coming of Jesus, everything was and is new. The old rituals of fasting, the dietary laws, and even the sacrificial laws of Judaism are, because of Jesus, no longer necessary. Now, things that, now those things were not bad, but with the coming of Jesus, they are no longer needed. The old covenant and the ritual and the sacrificial laws that surrounded it have been replaced with something better. Jesus is the new cloth. Jesus is the new wine. He is not simply an attachment, an addition, or an appendage to the Old Testament law and covenant, nor to the extra rituals and customs that the religious elite created on top of the Old Testament. If the Pharisees and the rest of the Jewish people simply try to incorporate Jesus into their normal way of life, if they try to force Jesus and the gospel into the structures of the Old Testament law, and not only that, but also their own legalistic practices, it would be like patching old cloth with a new piece of cloth, or it would be like pouring that new wine into old wineskins. Jesus is saying, your king has come. And if you try to fit my gospel of grace into your structures, you risk losing it all. Now the last sentence Jesus speaks in this grouping of parables is, but new wine is for fresh wineskins. You see, Jesus came to make old wineskins new. He came to make wineskins that can hold the new and sweet wine of his gospel. Friends, you cannot receive the new gospel of grace without being made new yourself. Like the Pharisees, you can't simply try to fit Jesus into your old way of living, pouring new wine into an old wineskin. If you try to be a Christian and keep your old ways, you will burst, and you will lose the precious wine that has come to us in Jesus. I'll end the sermon with this quote from the theologian Warren Wearsby. He says, Salvation is not a partial patching up of one's life. It is a whole new robe of righteousness. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, 
The Christian life is not a mixing of the old and the new. Rather, it is the fulfillment of the old in the new. You see, Jesus fulfilled the prophecies, types, and demands of the law of Moses. The law was ended at Calvary on the cross when the perfect sacrifice was once for all offered for the sins of the world. When you trust Jesus Christ, you become part of a new creation. And there are always new experiences of grace and glory. How tragic then when people hold on to their old way of living or hold on to dead religious tradition when they could lay hold of living spiritual truth. Why cherish the shadows when the reality has come? And so friends, I, I urge you, I, I implore you to be like Matthew who left everything behind. He left his old way of living. He left his old life. He left any sort of old custom that he was used to, his old sinful self that was nailed to the cross. He left all of that stuff in order to follow after Christ. And so I I implore you to do the same. Because Jesus is not just this addition to your life. He is life. And so I pray that you listen to his call. That you, that you heed his call of repentance and faith and give your life to him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you, God, that you came to make new wineskins, Lord, that could hold your grace. And so, Lord, I pray, God, that for the Christians in this room, who are still struggling with with their sins of their old life, God. I pray that you just continue your work of sanctification, continue your work of renewal, and keep forming us into those new wineskins, Lord, so that we we can pour out your grace and pour out your gospel on other people, Lord, so that we can go to the sinners just like you did and share with them the good news that their sins can be forgiven. And Father, for those who, God, who aren't saved in this room, Lord, I pray, Lord, that your, that your gospel pierces their heart this morning. God, that your spirit creates within them a new heart. And that you give them saving faith, Lord. So that they can see your beauty. They can see your goodness. And so that the the immense weight, the unmovable weight of sin can be taken off of them. Lord, we love you, God. I pray this in your son's name.